I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Now that sounds so easy, but dignity is so hard to come by. We've been working on it for a long time. And Barack Obama was elected president in 2008. I was so naive as to really believe this was a major step that history would show significantly reduced racism and fear of the other in America for a very long time. Clearly and quite sadly, I was quite wrong. (laughs) The reality was that racism, which apparently had been there all along, was suddenly let loose, like lifting the cover off a sewer. The unleashed stench now permeates America from coast to coast. But consider the context of this observer. When I was a suburban white kid in the late 1950s, I actually thought racism was was something bizarre and limited to a very few white crackers way down south. Uh, Clearly, I didn't understand racism in America, and I guess I haven't all along. What I do understand is now that our country was created on a foundation of racism against the indigenous millions who just had to be wiped out and on slavery, not just in the south, but America's economy as a whole really depended on racism. People who know me know there are two things I truly hate, fascism and racism. Their continued strength and appeal baffles me. And like most Americans, I will not accept either. It was indeed dismaying to learn that despite the myth, slavery did not end with the military defeat of the South and the passage of laws, but in fact continued well into the 20th century. See, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman. And of course, there was the Jim Crow laws. We've tried legislation, civil and voting rights bills, proud accomplishments by the brave Southerner President Lyndon Johnson. Yet, racism continued. The election of Donald Trump uh, excited and empowered open hate and racism across the land. So here we are. What do we do? Science itself has been attacked and dismissed much in the same tradition as the battle against science in the anti-evolution Scopes trial way back in 1925. There's something about science that drives the far right crazy. For an example, see climate change deniers, though science alone can't fix everything. When sought after and learned from, scientific research can be a very, very useful tool which can help us with severe and nagging social problems. Which brings us to today's topic. In the introduction to his new book, Max Clow asks, what's true about race and social change? What's true about race and social change? The book is called Race and Social Change, a quest, a study, a call to action. And it focuses on a provocative social science experiment with the possibility of addressing some of these needs 
through an analysis grounded in the perspectives of social psychology, complex systems, and critical race theory, the inquiry at the heart of this book explores the dynamics of race and social change in sometimes surprising and often important ways. Max Clough, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Well, Max Clough is the Chief Program Officer at the New Politics Leadership Academy, a nonprofit dedicated to recruiting and developing alumni of long-term service programs, both military and civilian, to run for political office. A good idea. Previously, he served as Vice President of Leadership Development at City Year, the Boston-based AmeriCorps program focused on addressing the nation's high school dropout crisis. Clow received his Doctorate of Education in Human Development and Psychology from the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 2005, where his studies focused on civic leadership education. He serves on the board of the International Leadership Association, and his writings about leadership have been featured in Fast Company, Harvard Business Review, Huffington Post, and the Washington Post. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Your introduction reminds us of the 2016 election as we saw black and brown Americans being physically assaulted at rallies for the Republican nominee, who is now president, individual one, Mm -hmm. he's been called. How could America, which twice elected a black president, come to this? And and you observe, before you start answering that, you observe that people look at the same events and see what it all means differently. It seems your quest to address the question you raise, what's true about race and social change, has been uh, with you for a very long time. And to me, the thing about science is starting out truly not knowing. That's the beauty of science, is just not knowing. As a 27-year-old, you already had years of involvement in service, youth development, and social justice education. Yet your month as a group leader traveling through some of the most important sites in the history of America's civil rights struggle, Birmingham, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Philadelphia, Mississippi, revealed that You still had no idea. So there's a place to start. No idea about what. And and how how did we get here after twice electing a black president? Yeah. So, um, you know, my the genesis of this book was I came into the world as a middle class white person, you know, grew up in a Connecticut suburb, had always been aware that race was just an incredibly important issue for this country, incredibly divisive. And it was very apparent that things would happen, and every everybody saw it in completely different ways. And I really, you know, as you mentioned, the about um, just stayed with the question. The, um, was just constantly in this space of inquiry of I don't understand this, and spent a lot of time, had chances to work with nonprofits, and you know, um, do work related to race and social change. But as I note in the book, a really important experience for me was when I was hired as a group leader for an organization called Operation Understanding DC, which uh, did a summer, a month-long summer bus ride. And it included 30 teenagers. Half of them were black and half of them were Jewish. And we did this bus tour through Selma and Montgomery and Birmingham and these really important civil rights places. And you know, I realized that I'd been trying to understand these things from my bubble, surrounded by people with my similar background, and, you know, most of them were my white peers. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, I was exploring these issues in relationship with people of color from very different backgrounds. And for the first time, I really had a chance to understand their experiences and, um, and you know, have these authentic relationships 
that were not just me talking to people um, who looked uh, right. just like me. Right. And it was the first time I realized how little I understood, despite being passionately involved in this stuff and reading books and caring about it. There was just a lot I didn't understand. You know, I guess I'm, I'm some, I mean, I grew up in the middle class white suburb as well. Uh, and in, until you really talk to, to people of color, it, you just don't know. I mean, I, I have a good friend now who told me that when he was in, uh, I think it was high school or maybe junior high school, uh, that he had he was going out with this girl for quite a while who happened to be white. And that after a while of going out with her, she came up to him and said, I have to break up with you. I will lose all my friends if I stay with you because he was black. And of mm-hmm. course that made him mm-hmm. cry. I mean, it's like, you know, and just experiencing that. And I don't know. I mean, and, and science somehow comes here and, you know, looking at that stuff and, and measuring that stuff, you know, because I, it baffles me. It just, I don't understand it. I really, I don't understand racism, except I guess it's fear of the other. But in the summer of, of 2002, you kind of chanced upon a program you thought might offer some missing answers to your questions about race and social change, something called Camp Anytown's Separation Exercise. What, what was that? What about it made you think it could provide important insights? Sure. So I was getting my doctorate in education at that point, and I was doing research into youth leadership, trying to understand how different programs thought about youth leadership and taught youth leadership. And it was in that context that I really stumbled on this program, Camp Anytown, which is a week-long residential youth leadership program for a very diverse group of high school students, usually about 40 students. And they gather for a week at a retreat center or a camp for a week of exploring, you know, isms, racism, sexism, and ageism, these things in, in a really kind of deep way. But there was an activity on the last day that really changed my life. And what happens is the Participants wake up and they gather in a circle before breakfast, as they had every day. But on this last day, something really different happens. The directors say, all right, now you have to get into groups, whites, Asians, Jews, Latinos, LGBTQ, blacks, and you have to stay with your group and you have to not make eye contact with anybody in another group and don't talk to anybody in another group. And then they were led into breakfast and the white kids went first and had unlimited food and a big table And every group lower in the hierarchy had kind of less resources to the point where the black kids had to sit on the floor with almost no food to eat. And they call it the separation exercise. And it's very clearly an attempt to simulate a segregated, hierarchical, unjust, Jim Crow-style social system. But the educational purpose is to give participants a chance to practice challenging these systems and transforming these systems. So what I saw was between breakfast and lunch – Events unfolded that in some really powerful ways mirrored the real-life events of the civil rights movement. And I realized, kind of, you know, as somebody who'd spent years trying to understand this, here was an entire social system undergoing a process of change, and it was kind of like a civil rights movement in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. Like, here was a chance to use the tools of empiricism and social science to try and understand these issues in some kind of rigorous way. And I just, you know, I spent the next four years of my life studying three more of these and analyzing them. And that's what led ultimately to this book. Wow. Interesting experiment. And as you talk, I am reminded, oh, I guess it was the early 60s with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yep. When mm-hmm. uh, I think I think it was Stokely Carmichael who, who said, you know, there's all these great white leaders down here, but you got to get out. 
This is ours. And at the time, I couldn't understand it. Why, why not have white people who want to help <laughs> as part of leadership? And it sounds like that addresses the same kind of thing you were talking about. Well, it's certainly, you know, watching this unfold, and especially I talk in the book, part of it was this, this big civil rights movement unfolded. People of color challenged these norms, came together, formed a whole kind of nonviolent social change movement. And while all of this was happening, the white kids were sitting in an air-conditioned, carpeted right. basement watching a movie, and they just had no clue. Um, and so that's, you know, right. what's true about race and social change? One of the things is the people with privilege don't see the system. They're really blind, and that happens oh. every time in all three of these exercises. So it's, um, you know, so perhaps this is a property of these systems, and if we can understand it more deeply, we can maybe be more effective in addressing it. I wonder how often people want to see things from a different perspective, even. <laughs> you know, who wants to sit on the floor and eat less food? <laughs> it, it's important. Yeah, to, it's, to... it is not comfortable. Um, <laughs> but I also think there's a lot of people looking at America today saying, oh, yes. I wish this could be different, um, and I'm not quite sure how to even think about what's going on. You know, um, so I do think there's people who want to shift things. Well, I, as I said, you know, early on, I, I, I just never expected the, the, the racism to explode once it could, once it was allowed after the election of, of uh, well, I suppose in a way he's a person of color. Orange happens to be his color. But uh, uh, Donald Trump, I, it just it, it surprises me. And I, I maybe part of your book is looking at, you know, how how does this ugly, you know, racism uh, come up and why does it fester underground for so many years? Well, I, you know, I will say it, um, that's another element where it's another part where people with privilege uh, might not understand, right. you know, see this stuff as clearly. But if you look at the the broad sweep of history uh, and, and the way this uh, American society has developed, there's this really clear pattern where every kind of major advance for people of color is followed really quickly by a really significant backlash. So, you know, you had the civil rights movement, and then you had a brief period of reconstruction where there was these tremendous advances for people of color yes. stepping into political power. And then you got this major backlash that led oh, to yeah. the century of Jim Crow. And, and so, you know, there's a sense in which this is the, this is the pattern of development takes two steps forward and then right. at least a step backwards every yeah. time. Yeah, some some kind of scientific uh, truism about uh, you know to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I, you know after mm -hmm. Reconstruction mm -hmm. there was the redemption movement. Ugh. and and you're right certainly. So here here we are still going on. Now the exercise exercises you base your research on were run largely back in 2004, and many books on race and social change have since been written. Why do you feel yours is particularly timely and useful now? What vo what void does it fill? So I definitely realize this is an incredibly complex issue. There's a lot of valuable perspectives. You know, you can look at this from an economics perspective, from a political perspective, the, uh, sociology. There's there's a lot of ways. Um, I think my book is a contribution in two senses. One is 
that separation exercise represents an extension of a long tradition of kind of classic social psychology experiments. And I dedicate a chapter to it. Experiments like the Milgram experiment around right. obedience to authority and the Stanford prison experiment and the brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment, which I'm sure some listeners are familiar with some of well, these. I want to talk about and it. this separation exercise extends that tradition um, and also brings in this new field of complex systems, which has been applied to, you know, it's helped us understand everything from the global economy to chemical reactions to um, social fads and, um, you know, uh, you know, sales of, of shoes and, the, you know, all sorts of things. And I just haven't seen it applied so directly uh. to this kind of social issue. So I think for those reasons, it contributes to the conversation. Well, it's so important to get the right tool for the job. And, and to talk about some of those uh, experiments you, you mentioned, I mean, the ultimate example of institutionalized Openly racist cruelties, of course, the Holocaust. You know, people ask, how could humans do that to each other? So right after the Second World War, as you mentioned, social psychologist Stanley Milgram had his uh, obedience experiments designed to look into this question. What about his work makes it infamous? And what were some of the disturbing takeaways which may relate to figuring out current racism and hatred? Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, Stanley Milgram was fascinated by the Holocaust. He was a professor at Yale, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 60s. And he really wanted to understand how could ordinary people be cruel to other fellow citizens? Yes. Just how did that happen? Yes. So he designed this experiment that is now infamous, where he had the, the subject uh, came in and was sitting in front of an electric shock board and was reading questions to a somebody who was in another room. And the instruction was if this person answered the questions wrong, he had to administer an electric shock of increasing um, intensity. And what the subject didn't know was that the person off screen was an actor, wasn't actually being shocked, but was acting. Yeah. And so the question was, with an authority figure saying you have to continue the ex experiment, how far would people go in administering these shocks? And the board went up to what it was labeled lethal. And everybody said nobody would do this, you know, some tiny, you know, 1% of people would do this. And in the end, what was so shocking was 60% of subjects went all the way up to the lethal level. Um, and, you know, there's, you can watch the videos on YouTube. They're just in moral anguish. But there's an authoritative-looking person in a white lab coat saying you have to keep going, and they obey. And it really uh, illuminates this kind of dark shadow of human behavior of how powerful this force of obedience is in our lives. Well, it's interesting how you know how how ugly that is, but it, I guess the question remains, how can people be so cruel? It it is, you know, the power of of obedience and, you know, I, sometimes I even wonder how is it these Republican senators stick with this obviously bizarre, twisted, etc. guy. I I I don't I mean, it's not quite the same as as torturing someone, but speaking of torture, the torture of Iraqi prisoners by U.S. service members at Abu Ghraib uh, shocked Americans back home. And I suspect that was just one discovered example where there's probably a lot. But for those familiar with Philip Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment stopped after just six days after its intended two weeks, it probably wasn't a surprise. What happened in that experiment? Yeah, that's another classic uh, that's, 
um, you know, is part of this tradition. So Philip Zimbardo was a professor at Stanford. He wanted to understand total institutions um, like prisons. So they, simu- they kind of created a simulated prison in the basement of a Stanford administrative building. They found 22 students who just kind of well-adjusted, ordinary students um, who, you know, um, just ordinary participants. They randomly separated them into um, prisoners and guards. And then they kind of created a simulation and let it run. And it was supposed to go for two weeks. They had to stop it after six days because the guards had become so cruel and kind of, you know, you know, forcing the prisoners to wake up five times a night and just had become cruel. And the prisoners were clearly in anguish, having some real, you know, it was really painful for them. And they realized it was, it was too much. They had to stop it. And it shows you the power of these institutions to kind of warp human behavior. And then you see it in the real world with the Abu Ghraib uh, prison scandal, where it's clear that sometimes, you know, institutions can lead to this kind of behavior in some really shocking ways. It makes me wonder how much of, of human nature it just is, you know, is this something uh, that's that's universal and there potentially all the time in all cultures that, you know, if turned loose, people can be amazingly cruel if they feel like they're they're following orders. I mean, I, I just I, makes me wonder, is this part of human nature? Is You know, are there can it be scientifically studied and looked at and figured out why people do this, how it gets unleashed, and that perhaps maybe it's not part of human nature? It's sort of a question there. Well, you know, I think it's a mistake to look at that Stanford prison experiment and say, so this is proof that, you know, humans are kind of naturally awful. Um, What it shows is the power of of institutions to shape behavior. And Uh it's fascinating to follow Philip Zimbardo's work because he has since shifted to, so what are kind of institutions and systems that call forth heroism? and civic engagement and kindness. And um, I think that is the the deepest message of, we tend here in the West, and especially in America, we tend to think that we're independent, autonomous individuals. And again and again, these experiments force us to recognize how powerfully shaped we are by the institutions and the systems in which we're immersed. But it is possible to imagine systems that call forth um, positive behaviors. And so what does it mean to think about systems that call that forth as opposed to creating this kind of dehumanizing dehumanizing experience. Ah, that's interesting. Uh, shaping the system. that That's an interesting uh, thought and way around it rather than just throwing up your hands and giving up, which... I... Yeah, it's, it's a mistake to say that it's just it's proof we're terrible. That's not really what it is. Well, that's that's good to hear. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Max Clow, who's the author of a new book called Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. And and one more interesting study, which is sort of all part of this, you know, separation exercise. Uh, you talk about American teacher Jane Elliott, who tried to sensitize her class of white third graders to the pain of racism after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Some unexpected lessons came of it. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about the blue eyes, brown eyes exercise and, and what that lesson is, as perhaps as relates to institutionalization. That's the right word. Yeah, it's another classic, and there's actually been a couple documentaries about this that you can see scenes on, on YouTube if you're interested in this. But she was a white uh, teacher 
in, in the Midwest and teaching third grade, a class full of white third graders. And the day after Martin Luther King got assassinated, she felt like she had to find a way to help her students understand how racism worked. Um, so what she came up with was this educational activity where the kids showed up and she said, all right, today the blue-eyed kids are superior. They're better in every way. They're smarter. They're more capable. They're going to get extra recess time. They're going to get to go to the fountain when they want to. And the brown-eyed kids are inferior in every way. They have to wear a, they have to wear a collar and they can do nothing right. And they're just less intelligent and less capable. And um, what was amazing was the kids really internalized this fast. So you could see very quickly, the blue-eyed kids kind of internalized that they really were better and more deserving and, you know, just superior. And the brown-eyed kids clearly internalized this lower self-worth and kind of kept to themselves at, um, at, you know, when they were able to go out to recess. And it just really, this system quickly internalized. But what was amazing was after two days, she flipped it around and kind of at a, at a moment's notice said, all right, things are going to change now. And from now on, the brown kids are superior. They are smarter and better in every way. And it's the blue-eyed kids who are inferior. And what was amazing was how quickly the kids internalized this totally different, you know, power arrangement. So the kids who used to feel really superior and entitled and, uh, you know, better than very quickly kind of internalized the sense, okay, now they're Hmm. inferior. And um, what it does is show you the power of these systems of privilege and oppression, um, again, to shape human behavior and to, um, and to internalize within us our own sense of who we are and kind of how we fit into the bigger system. And it shows you the power of these systems to um, influence us. Interesting. Well, that, that, I've already learned a little bit that, so institutions, the values of institutions being imposed from the top down, uh, it works. <laughs> it works. It really affects people. People start to uh, believe, not just start, they act on it and they, and they believe it and they, and they work on it. That's really interesting yeah. about the power of institutions. Huh. We need systems. Yeah. And systems. Yes, systems. But, you know, there, there's the uh, uh, experiment, the separation exercise. You work in Camp Anytown. That was being overseen by the Harvard Institutional Review Board. And both they and you concluded that the benefits of the separation exercise outweighed its potential risks. That's interesting. Tell us about how they came to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, this the separation exercise, as with all of these exercises, you know, um, uh, activities that we've talked about, they are ethically challenging. And I spend time in the book. Yeah. I, I, I was not cavalier about this. This is an ethically challenging thing to do. I'm still a little bit amazed. My pitch to the Harvard Institutional Review Board was that, you know, we were not creating this experiment. And I still think there's no grad student alive today who could proactively create this exercise. But my pitch was this other organization is creating it. We are just going to observe it. And, you know, we had a little questionnaire that would add five minutes to their reflection time that was already part of it. So um, we were really just observing this thing and they went for it. And I'm still kind of amazed because this is research that's really has not been allowed to happen for 40 years. But there was, um, because of the fact that we were observing another program running this that would happen without us there we were able to move forward with this well yeah it it takes uh you know you got to look at things you don't want to look at that's that's part of uh what brings about social change i think yeah and and this 
the social psychology studies, they really shine a light on some dark corners of human behavior in a way that I hope is empowering and illuminating and hopefully positive. Boy, I, I hope so. We got to do it. We can't just, uh, I mean, there's so many things that, that keep happening that you, you think, I mean, that, that massacre in uh, New Zealand, that the hate that's there. Yeah. I, 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 steps have to be taken. Just, you can't just just leave that. Uh, and with all three of the separation exercises that you observed, they all had the same basic structure, but they played out quite differently. What were the most striking distinctions, and what, why is that important? Yeah, so when I started doing this, I just kind of assumed they would all unfold roughly in a similar way. And that was really not the case. Every single one of them, um, very different things happened. And, I, you know, a lot of the book is kind of analyzing this. But what seemed to be the case was the way things went was kind of a result of the way of being of the directors who made educational choices that were clearly reflections of their, not just their values, but were they, were they um, you know, really compassionate and uncomfortable with authority or were they able to hold that compassion and authority together or were they just kind of focused on the authority? You know, there were, our program kind of had directors who were in the world in those different ways. And that seemed to be the key reason why things unfolded so differently. And it got to this place of, it seems like the these directors create this kind of relational field by virtue of how they show up in the world that makes certain things possible and other things not possible. And uh, it shows kind of the deep relationship between our own kind of quality of presence and way of being and the systems in which we are immersed. And I think it's one of the deeper findings of this to see how interconnected the inner and the outer worlds are. Well, I, I, I get the sense, this is just a guess here, that, that each of us as individuals, we, we kind of... All right. There's. I. I do believe that we're that we're born with some sort of sense of right and wrong, and that, and again, that may be a ridiculous stretch, but I. I just have that feeling, and and I. I also think people have some need for systems, for uh, institutions, be it religion, whatever, to to say, oh yeah, this is right, this is wrong, this is how we do things, and and you know, I just I. I wonder about. That need is that kind of a universal, timeless need that we have for that kind of thing, and you know, institutions can go rogue, shall we say, and and get uh, out of hand. But uh, can they? I wonder if the work, the research that you did, uh, sheds light on on that problem itself. Well, I do want to note there's a difference between institutions and asking, you know, do people feel the need to affiliate with a religion or with a, you know, civic organization or something like that. That's a different thing from the racial system uh-huh. that has been part of this country from the beginning yes. and is in a process of evolution. And every one of us is kind of born into the world at a particular moment of that evolution. And we don't really get to choose whether we want to affiliate with that or not. We are in it um, from whatever place we inhabit in that system. And it's the world we encounter and how we respond to it builds the world that we leave to our children and grandchildren. Ah. And so I do want to differentiate between, you know, kind of choosing to affiliate with institutions and seeing the system of race that is the reality in this country. I'm glad I asked. That's a good uh, uh, distinction between it. 
And you were the only white member of the three-member research team observing the exercises. It must have been interesting how the input of your two black colleagues affected and perhaps adjusted your perspective. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, so I, you know, I certainly was aware that as a white person, I had blind spots and things I don't see, and I thought it was really essential that I have fellow researchers who you know, had different backgrounds and could see things differently. What, one of my questions doing this was, would we all look at these, you know, these uh, separation exercises and see different things? Because that happens so often in, you know, when events, racially tinged events happen in the world. And that actually wasn't the case. We, we all watch these, you know, we're kind of standing on a soccer field watching the kids move around and the group shift. And we, it was actually, we all saw the same stuff. You know, I saw this kid do this and then this happened and there wasn't a lot of um, disagreement around that. Um, but of course, we do are sensitive to different experiences of different groups. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, and certainly my uh, felt a, a connection to the Jewish groups, and they felt connections to you know the the black groups, and so you could see that sense of feeling naturally more connected to parts different parts of the system. Um, but I think it was power the power of this exercise was to kind of stand outside this system and watch it in a way that you can't do in the real world. There is no getting outside of America's racial system. There is only trying to understand it from our place within it. Um, but in this exercise, we were able to um, pretty quickly arrive at a, a mutually shared understanding of this is how events unfolded and how it all went down. Interesting. I've heard psychologists talk about how important it is to, when, you, when you're dealing with some trauma or something that's, that's you know holding you back, to pretend like you're an observer and what's going on in your life is on a movie screen and you're looking at it. So mm. looking at it from a different perspective, uh, really different perspective, is a heck of a way to get on top of it and you know not have it control you, but you have some power over it. Interesting. It sounds mm. like that may, may apply to uh, oh, lots of scientific things. Just getting out and looking at it from a different perspective one might assume that those at the top of the separation exercise hierarchy felt primarily lucky or fortunate, and that those at the bottom experienced only pain and frustration. The teens' experience, as you described, were more complicated than that. How, how so, and what's important to learn from that? I mean, a, a key idea of this is just how complex it is, and you can't make simple generalizations of everybody at the top felt this way and everybody in the middle felt this way. And, um, you know, uh, when you listen to the voices of the kids in each group, every kid in, in within a group is having a very different experience. You look at the, sure. you know, the participants in the Latino group, and some of them are having a really good time hanging out with their friends. Some of them are really, you know, outraged at the treatment they're having to endure. And um, so, you know, people respond to this stuff in different ways. And we have to kind of be able to hold the complexity of all of that. Right. But one thing is clear is that, you know, especially in the debrief, when people really talk about what happened, everybody is confronted with some really difficult, uncomfortable emotions. You know, mm. for the, the privileged kids, there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes up when they realize um, what they were experiencing as part of the system where other people were having a very different experience, you know, and for people farther down, there's a lot of anger and feeling of injustice. And so we are all, should we choose to step out of our, right. you know, kind of familiar, comfortable place, we have to, what is the wisdom of working with these dark emotions 
so that we can make a positive, productive change and not just be overwhelmed by darkness. Interesting. My my oldest daughter is a senior in college, and she's been working on some of these exercises, and she's acutely aware of white privilege. And it, yeah. it's very challenging, of course, and it seems to be hitting this generation particularly hard. I can't help but think that's a good thing. What it's going to evolve into, I have no idea. But, you know, it's it's a very, very different perspective, and it's hard. But getting different perspective, I guess that's what we're talking about here. And, you know, it's, it's part of science, is stepping out of what's familiar and, and looking at uh, things from a different uh, point of view. In case you just tuned in, dear listener, uh, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Max Clow, whose new book is called Race and Social Change, A Quest, a Study, and a Call to Action. And we definitely, before the hour ends, we want to get into a call to action, what the heck we can do about this stuff. Um, although their personal experiences of the kids differed notably more uniform with the teens' reasons for not confronting the injustices of the exercise, what held most of them back? Obedience and conformity was far uh, away. Uh, they were af- afraid of the authorities, and they were afraid of leaving their friends. And uh, by yeah. far, that was the biggest forces. And again, it shows you oh, wow. the, how powerful those forces are in our lives. And also, I hope this exercise shows how those kind of personal choices end up impacting system-wide dynamics. Right. Who, who consistently broke the exercise? Those who were perceived as the powerful and privileged or the members of the oppressed groups? So that was definitely a pattern that very clearly appeared across all of them. It was always the folks lower in the hierarchy who were the first to challenge the system. The, the you know breaking the system always came from a person of color. Now, as events unfolded, you got these you know got allyship and everybody got involved, and white people were definitely part of these movements for social change, but they were never the ones to start it. That was a very clear pattern. Well, they're always perceived leaders, but that can shift uh, very much, as, as I've discovered in, in my life. As you start to clarify why the three exercises displayed such differences, you came to focus on their leaders. Why and in what ways do you feel they made such an impact? And, and how were leaders uh, perceived? Talk about that, please. Well, part of the power of this complex systems perspective that this you know I, I ground this analysis in is it really forces us to think differently about leadership. We often conflate leadership with authority, with the person in charge. And so much about complex systems comes from self-organization. And, you know, in these experiments, in these exercises, we saw the emergence of self-organized movements, like the young people coming together very clearly, not under the direction of anybody else and coming up with their own kind of 10 points value system and statement, and then going out and self-organizing a nonviolent protest movement. So um, interesting. it forces you to realize that you know, in complex systems, there might not, might not be anybody in charge yeah. in the way we think about it. That being said, um, there is authority in the world, and um, what this experiment invites us to think about is how relevant the, the deepest way of being of those people in charge are. It wasn't so much just the choices they made or the rules they set up. It was a whole way of being, of being able to be compassionate or um, or using their power in, in ways that created kind of a social field that really rippled out through the system in ways that are 
I don't fully understand how it happened, but I, but I, I do think this study shows that is, seems to be how things work. And, you know, so you can, I think you can see it today with Trump and, you know, you are seeing the emergence, the surfacing of kind of hate and, um, you know, uh, uh, his way of being is kind of infusing the system and calling forth energies that have not been publicly, you know, quite as public in the past. And it's a way of understanding how this, the, the power of the person in charge to call forth energies from the system. Wow. That, that, that uh, stimulates a, a lot of thought that, you know, leadership does change and it gets organized differently as time goes on and as an organization goes on. I mean, I was thinking before you mentioned, you know, Trump and, and kind of it seems to be celebrating cruelty. I mean, just cruelty in every possible way and, and somehow connecting afraid people with that, people who are fearsome and just hatred and cruelty. But there's also, I mean, young people. I have, I mean, I, I am so impressed by young people these days at, you know, to their stimulus and reaction and the reaction of that. As you say, some of these leaders who, who come up and get things, what I would consider right, you know, and, and, and fighting against injustice, that, that's kind of a beautiful thing to see. And I wonder if there are scientific ways in which it can be measured and replicated. Well, you know, to jump to a call to action. Sure. You know, one of the things I call for is, is national service uh, and kind of. Uh, universal national service and every young person at the age of 22, 23 uh, does a year of full-time service. And my own career, I spent 10 years at an organization called City Year, which was a national service organization, which, you know, an AmeriCorps program, young adults coming together and just a powerful character building experience where you have to work alongside people from very different backgrounds. You are kind of pulled out of your bubble and work shoulder to shoulder with people um, from different political views and different socioeconomic backgrounds, putting the country first, serving a cause larger than self. And, you know, I do think if that kind of experience was much more universal, we would just have a lot more people who are, um, you know, have reached out across those boundaries. They have a deeper understanding, a more accurate understanding of the, the truth of the systems in which we're immersed. And have this mix of kind of humility about the, you know, their, uh, how small they are in the face of all this and also their very real power to actually step in and make change in, in partnership with others. Yeah, I've, I've long been interested in that as kind of a, a fan of Franklin Roosevelt's programs and, you know, having projects where the entire, lots of people working together so that if you're with your neighbors working on a project, their health and safety and, you know, sanity matters to you it really and there's something about humility there's just i i i have a sense it's just it's so important and you know when people uh, do work together on voluntary national service i i i have a lot of faith in that there was the whole uh, ccc under roosevelt uh, and yeah, now there's sure, the student sure. conservation association which uh, i think is just a terrific thing and uh, and doing that and uh, i wonder if uh, I mean, are you a voice in the wilderness on that, calling for that kind of thing? And how scientifically did that was that suggested? I mean, how did that conclusion kind of evolve from your research? Well, 
you know, it's been my career is I, I did spend, you know, I, I got a doctorate. I was in academia, but my career has really been in the service world and the service movement, which has been around. I mean, you talked about the kind of the earliest, um, you know, the, the, the really earliest service experiences were under Franklin Roosevelt and the uh, CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, but it's evolved. There's VISTA, there's Peace Corps, and now there's AmeriCorps, yes. um, which, you know, engages about 90,000 young people oh, a year stuff. all over the great country. Yeah. So. There's a, there's a movement. There are the Service Year Alliance is an organization that's been advocating to expand this for a long time. So definitely not a voice in the, in the wilderness, but there's definitely yeah. um, um, you know, room for improvement for making this really a part of American civic life. Boy, I think so. And I think if, if more politicians had the guts, dare I say chutzpah, to a fellow uh, Jew here, <laughs> that, uh, you know, if they realize, if they call for national service, I think it'd be really popular. I really do, on the left and right and, and everybody. You know, people yeah. hunger for a sense of community, for, for working yeah. together, and, and a great deal can be uh, accomplished by that. What are the interesting things? I mean, science always discovers unexpected things uh, one of which was it, it surprised me was uh, uh, the exercise that exhibited the greatest self-organization individual agency was not you concluded the one that provided participants with the most freedom that that's mm. a little surprising to me I wonder if you could explain yeah. that finding yeah I mean this is part of the power of thinking about complex systems and just it's very counterintuitive um, but I think it's really important for us to understand it. And, you know, the lowest hanging fruit in the research around this was just to count how many rules were created in the uh, uh-huh. design of these three different separation exercises. And turns out that the one that had the greatest creativity, the one that generated this kind of self-organized, nonviolent social change movement, just the, that closely mirrored the dynamism of real life, had twice as many rules as the other groups, you know, as the other exercises. And so, you know, I, the truth is I hadn't really thought about it all that much, but I mm-hmm. would have assumed that less rules creates, allows for more creativity. But what you actually got was more rules and more creativity, you know, wow. more structure and more creativity. And just this kind of paradox, and that paradox kept showing up all the time in just how systems work. They seem to hold opposites in this really counterintuitive way. Wow, interesting. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's such a great thing about science is finding stuff you don't expect. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. You explore a computer simulation called the game of life. What does that reveal mm. about the conditions most conducive to actual and positive change? So... You know, there's a couple chapters in the book that are dedicated to complex systems. And I, I, you know, I feel like we couldn't really understand these separation exercises unless we understood, took a pretty deep dive into how, what do we know about complex systems? And there's been these kind of fascinating computer simulations. And one of them called the Game of Life was this attempt to use computers to simulate dynamics of real life, which meant this kind of constant creativity, um, you know, constant change but order at the same time and could we create some kind of computer simulation that was able to create those conditions and it took them years to figure out how to do it but it was this very narrow path on the edge between order and chaos you know there were some computer systems that just you would set them to run and very quickly they would settle into some stable state and nothing would happen 
And then there were other ones that just instantly went chaotic. There was no, no order, no structure. And there was this very narrow band right on the edge between order and chaos where you got this creativity, just this kind of endless, oh, there was yeah. structure and order, but also constant change. And so, it, you know, how do you simulate the creativity of real life? And then, you know, applying that, it, it, what I found, I didn't expect it, but it became a really important way to understand what had happened where only one of these three separation exercises really generated that kind of creativity that really mirrored the real world. Hmm. And it is, as you say in, in the, the last, oh, well, not the last chapter, chapter 10, the dual call to action is the title of it. You know, there's inner work and outer work. And, and you yes. cite uh, Joseph Campbell on that saying, for we move each in two worlds, in the inward of our own awareness and an outer participation in the history of our time and place. So what is this mm. dual call to action, you know, this, this inner and outer work? Talk about that if you would, please. Yeah, I've been a Joseph Campbell fan for a long time. Oh, yeah. Studying yeah. his myths, he says this is kind of the, one of the deepest insights of myths is how interconnected our inner world and our outer world is. And it was kind of amazing to go through this whole exercise and, you know, to reference that the, the findings around kind of the way of being of the directors and how that influenced the system and kind of called forth a particular system. This is one of the, like, it was this empirical research that kind of demonstrated how profoundly our inner ways of being call forth systems around us. Um, and so what does it mean to operate with an understanding of the interconnectedness of our inner world and our outer world? Right. And that's a kind of a, you know, a, a deep insight to take from this. And it means we have to do some inner work around managing, you know, like first seeking a higher consciousness around mm -hmm. these systems so we understand more accurately what we are immersed in. And then when you understand accurately what's going on, how do you manage the difficult uncomfortable emotions yeah. from seeing how unfair it is um, and not just allowing that to become the ground of our being to be hateful people or guilty people because that's not productive. Um, so there's some kind of spiritual work to be done mm -hmm. as we seek to encounter these systems around us. Yeah. And, and just doing what's familiar is so much easier, but it ain't good. <laughs> we can't just accept that. And, you know, I know yeah. as, as each, you know, individual, I, I think a lot of liberal white people, uh, we don't want to be racist, but we look in, we have to look inside. And I wonder, yeah. you know, how, as you ask, how does that racist society live in each of us? Yikes, that's a hard thing to, to deal with, but we got to do that. We're all kind of carrying yeah. that around, I think. So, yeah. So I don't know how we can best uh, uh, deal with that. And I was a... Uh, uh, person of the 60s, uh, you know, the anti-war movement and all that stuff. And to me, I do believe that the movements of the 60s, especially the civil rights movement, brought real and positive change. Of course, uh, the revolution was not over. Uh, we didn't necessarily win, but historic gains were made. You suggest yeah. that your work brings a scientific framework to bear on social movements. How does that change your understanding of an and our approach to and such work and how we kind of use that and plug it in and go from there. How, you know, how we take what may have been learned there. Well, probably not learned, but it happened anyway. 
I got a question here, and I think you have a response already. <laughs> Somewhere is a buried uh, question you know, in there. Well, one of the opportunities of these separation exercises to kind of empirically study how these systems change. Right. And one, you know, another pattern that very clearly appeared across all three was two hours of stasis, like two hours that passed without anybody really challenging these systems. And then somebody would do something and you'd get this kind of sudden wave of change, you know, especially in the one that really mirrored the real world. Um, that seemed to have a worked of, of long periods of kind of nothing happening and then a tipping point where suddenly massive waves of change were unleashed. And, you know, it's, it feels a little bit like the 60s of just, you know, you go through the 50s, this time of incredible conformity, and then you get this massive wave of change. And then, you know, things get really complex and it's much more interconnected. It's much less segregated and hierarchical than it used to be. And then, you know, what's the work as the system continues to get ever more interconnected and interdependent, but is still in the midst of a process of transformation. And I would say, you know, that's kind of where we are now. And hopefully this gives us a way to think about what is the work as we continue this product, you know, we continue this process of transformation and, you know, how do we understand our role in it? And how do we even think about what it means to move forward around this? And yeah, I'd, you know, the election of, of, Trump was extremely depressing. I mean, just and and psychologists and psychiatrists had a had a banner business for a long time. They probably still do, because I mean, it really upset people. Uh, it's still depressing after all these years, in which I thought real progress had been made. Sometimes I allow myself to think maybe Trump is a very useful wake up call, which perhaps somehow we needed. How much progress have we really made, and how optimistic? are you for the future of a less racist society? What, what can be picked up? For I mean, there's many different uh, tools, but what about from, from your book, from your research? Where can we go from here, and, and what are things that might lead someone to optimism? Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I do think there's a way of viewing this, you know, what I try and do in the book is viewing this as just our current moment in an ongoing developmental process that's really been happening since the dawn of human history, and certainly in our American context since the founding of this country. And to view it through that lens of this developmental process, and it's, you know, it's not quite fair to say, hey, we made progress, and now Trump got elected. I guess we haven't made progress. Right, right. It, to see it in this, you know, a few steps forward, a, a, a few steps back, there's movement forward and then a backlash, seems to be, to, to view it in that developmental perspective can be valuable, uh -huh. uh, as opposed to this kind of binary We've progressed. We haven't progressed. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I do think there's all kinds of positive, productive things that can be done. You know, it's certainly a lot of individuals kind of awakening to a higher consciousness around this and really kind of um, yeah. seeing this more clearly. There are certainly institutions exactly. like national service that can yes. really make a meaningful difference. There are countries that have had truth and reconciliation commissions that have really confronted these historical issues with a level of kind of directness and courage that we have not yet mustered. There's easy, it's easy to imagine uh, things we could do. But I'll also say, for everybody listening, all you get to control is yourself and your own personal journey and your own choice. And I hope the book is an invitation to um, achieve a higher consciousness around this and courageously 
step into your challenge zone around this work, kind of find your own pathway because there's so much, there's so many different ways we can do meaningful work and you can't control anybody besides yourself. So each of us has to just kind of own our journey and step into this in a, in a powerful way. And of course, we're all as individuals, citizens, and we can participate in the political system. And I, I think calling on our elected officials and politicians to uh, to push for a, uh, a national service it's something we can do. It's it's one of the many, many things yep. we, we can do. And, and politicians need to know uh, from the people that they have the support to do things, you know, because and, and, they're not going to do it on their own. If, if it's at all risky, politicians are, are uh, rather risk averse. But if you make things safe for them and, and push for, hey, let's really, you know, people are waking up, I think, you know, the bubble Trump was a good bubble burster. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. We got stuff to do now, and we can do it. And, uh, oh, maybe this will be a positive step. I don't know. I, I try to keep it that way. The book is called Race and Social Change. It's a bright uh, black and white striped cover. And, I, you know, no surprise there. Race and Social Change, a quest, a study, a call to action. Our guest has been its author, Max Clow. Thanks so much for being with us. Very interesting uh, ways of uh, looking at things. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Here's a little song you can all join in with. It's very simple and I hope it's new. Make your own words up if you want to. Any old words that you think will do. Join in with it's very simple.